Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Susan Abungo Otieno, also known by her family name as Guya, is a Kenyan lawyer who specializes in intellectual property, artificial intelligence, digital rights, and data governance. Guya is currently a legal advisor on intellectual property for Picha, an Afrocentric stock photography platform based in Kenya that has partnered with Adobe to create specialized stock library photos that are made in Africa that celebrate positive representations of black and brown communities across the world. Guya's interest in technology grew out of her legal work she does on e-commerce platforms. In today's episode, Guya and I discuss how her work at Picha led her to develop an interest in global data governance and commercial platform responsibilities. She teaches digital policy and regulation to the Tech Policy Fellows at the Lawyers Hub, an organization designed to help educate lawyers in Africa that are interested in digital economy and data protection and intellectual property laws. Join us as we discuss data protection and other laws that impact the digital economy around the globe. Guya, welcome to Explain to Shane. I appreciate you being a guest today on the show. I I really do. It's so much fun. (laughs) So I was very lucky that we met uh, when I was over at the Internet Governance Forum over in Ethiopia, and I just got a last-minute invitation to this tech lawyers dinner, and you just made the whole whole conference so much more fun. I met you, and the whole thing was just a whole lot better. But you're doing so much interesting work, so let's let's talk about that. So first of all, let's talk about what you're working in in the in the legal area right now, especially in the tech space. Sure thing, um, and thank you for having me. It's uh, I don't think I made that much of a, a statement at the dinner, but um, oh yeah, you did. Do you know how many pictures think... I have of you? <laughs> <laughs> Sending. I'm like, I was like your mom. Oh no, turn. You are getting an award. Let me take another one. I'll take your word for it. Um, so <clears throat> I am a lawyer by profession. In Kenya, we say advocate. A lawyer is someone who's done like their undergrad and an advocate who is someone who is currently having their practicing certificate and can be recognized in a court of law. So um, I work at the Lawyers Hub as a training lead and I train organizations, companies and individuals on data protection. Uh, We're also introducing courses on artificial intelligence, uh, digital transformation, etc. I also handle legal and content development for Peacher Stock, which is an Afrocentric uh, stock photo provider that focuses on positive representations of uh, Black and African communities. That sounds like a lot. Yep. So how, how often do you teach these classes? So the trainings, uh, I'd say regularly, there's one every month, but it can go to as high as five um, four to five in a month. Are these like, so here in the States, we have what they call CLEs or continuing legal education mm-hmm. credits. Is it similar to that? So, uh, in a sense, yes. Uh, okay. so the governing body, which is the law society of Kenya facilitates certain continuous legal education for lawyers overall, but lawyers hub does specific, uh, paid trainings for, um, tech, um, like they run the gamut, but ideally within tech. Um, and these are, as I've said, paid trainings and they're separate from what the Law Society offers, but they are uh, collaborating so that you can get a, a 
we, what we call a, C, a point, a CPD point. Yeah, and it sounds very similar. Year, yeah, what you need to move over to the next year to get your license. And you got to keep up because some of the laws, <laughs> you know, in a good way, they change. You know, I'm always like, we, we have so many nice analog laws that need to be brought into the digital updated. world. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you spend a lot of time in the copyright and IP space, especially in the uh, the work that you do for the, the photo entity. Yeah. So tell us about that. I find that fascinating. Um, honestly, like at first I thought it was just going to be like, oh, I'm just review some contracts and I'm going to be, you know, like looking at paperwork. But it was so different because I really was like interfacing with creatives, photographers, videographers, illustrators, graphic designers, and I didn't know how to communicate with them. I'm very, you know, structured law. This is what this says, the act. And they're very, I like to take pictures. I like to express myself and this is my medium. Um, and at the beginning, it was quite frustrating because for me, I was coming from a transactional point of view in terms of this is what you need to do. This is what you need to know. This is the law. It can empower you. But it wasn't like reaching them because they were coming from a different point because they perceive information from a different lens. So it took me time to understand that and be able to kind of unpack my own um, communication style so that I can be able to relate and also to convey what I need to convey. Um, and that also got me into photographies, which is great. So oh, nice. Now I, yeah, now I'm able to um, speak in a language that makes sense to creatives and also just build conversations with them, which is great. So uh, Pitcha, am I saying that right? Pitcha yes. is, is similar to like we think of, we use Adobe a lot over here. And as um, somebody who writes a blog and my whole crew, they always like to have a visual on there. Yeah. And it is always a challenge because you want to find something that's in the commons uh, unless you have, you know, light, depending on, you know, if you have license stuff. So how do you, how do you work with the, um, the creatives on that? You know, if they're there, how does that process work? I guess is really my question. Yeah. Um, Maybe. so there's, uh, there's different categories. So what you talk about the commons, that's ideally, uh, images or content that's available, that's publicly available on the internet and it's free to use. There are conditions, but ideally creative commons is for the public, it's kind of like open source. So it's for the public to use for their blogs, for their social media and whatever purposes that they have. Um, and then there's uh, licensing and that is from the backbone of copyright. So what that basically means is um, as the, you know, the person who's taken the image, I own the the, the intellectual property or the, the, the copyright to that image and meaning I can commercialize, I can monetize and I can decide what happens to that image. And so through a license, I can allow someone else to use the image and ideally they would pay for that. So when it comes to using, for example, images on a blog, you have to be careful <laughs> because you don't want to use anyone's image without their permission, but there is content that's available for free. Pexels is, is a great platform that offers free content. You can download images and use that on your blog. And there, in terms of stock photography platforms, there's paid platforms and there's free platforms. Hmm. So is that part of what you work? I don't mind paying for it. I just sometimes find it complicated. I mean, I just sometimes you want what you want and you're like, and then you get into it and you're like, ah, oh, this is going to take longer than I thought, you know? So is that part of what you work on at Pitcha is, is giving, is helping the facilitation of that transaction? Like I really am interested in your image, but I'm, I'm happy to pay for it. But I, how do I do that? 
Yes. So uh, uh, the stock photography model ideally operates from a series of permissions. So you have the model who will give the photographer permission to shoot them and consequently monetize the image and release them from any liability. And then you have the photographer who gives the platform permission to uh, showcase their images on the platform. And ideally, when they're sold, they get a commission and uh, the photographer will retain their rights to the image. So for us, we realize that in Africa, there's uh, quite a bit of awareness that needs to happen because people aren't fully familiar with stock photography and how it works. So, you know, we really try to unpack that and go from a simple, simplified version, which, for example, like I use the permissions, a series of permissions. It's easy for someone to understand that and also to understand how the platform works. So for us, we 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 have contributors who voluntarily, ooh, English, voluntarily <laughs> upload their images to the platform and they sign in a, um, a license agreement uh, with Picha. And then ideally they receive 50% commission when an image is purchased or licensed. And then the image can be licensed as many times as possible. A thousand times, a hundred times, they get a commission from each of that um, sale. That's so that's fantastic. And are you, are you, is it growing? Are people realizing now that this is a best way to do it? I mean, it's the internet helping them license their work because that's always the challenge, right? It's just that information flow you were talking about earlier, getting people yeah, to understand how it works. You would think so, but like some people think stock is extractive because um, for you to make maybe, you know, some earnings in stock, you really have to, it's really about volume. Um, so you really have to sell. So the average image you might sell for like 50 cents or like, you know, you know like 40 cents. So it's volume. Yeah, exactly. And people aren't really looking at it from that. They really want my money now. Like when I upload, when I create the account, I should start making money and that's not how it works. So there's, again, quite a bit of awareness and education that needs to happen so that they can understand the model and also understand the advantages of it. Um, there's some contributors who have really taken to it and they evangelize stock photography um, in Africa, but it's really a long, it's really a long conversation and it's taking time. It's also a long game. Like if you think about it, you have all these beautiful photos, yet yeah, might seem like it takes a while for it to accumulate. But if you put your photos up now and you get them in the system, people keep clicking on them, those little 50 cents, they eventually become dollars. Yeah, it, it adds up. It's ad mm -hmm. It adds up. Mm, and it's hard to sell passive income. That's what I'll yeah. say. It's hard to sell. It's, which is <laughs> very important because it's a very good way to make money. Um, so how are you feeling about all of the generative AI that's going on? And how is that um, influencing or affecting your marketplace? So I'm really excited about it, but I think there's stigma because people don't want to understand what it is. And two, there's this idea that it is either going to replace or it's going to take you know, all the work or it's going to reshape what create the creative process is, which isn't the case. Because when you look at um, generative AI, it ideally, even the fact that there there's use of synthetic data, data that is manufactured and not generated, when you look at that and you look at the creative process, when you're thinking about a shoot, when you're thinking about taking a series of images to tell a story, this is something that's intimate to you as the creative and it's unique to you as well. So I don't foresee, you know, this kind of, oh, AI, like generative AI is now going to be the new type of um, art or how we create. 
I see it as a, a, um, a supplementary aspect. I see it as, as a tool. And, and when you look at editing, for example, post-production, one of the big um, issues is, you know, the time that's spent in editing. So if there's a tool that is uh, coming up or is being developed that will help that, why not embrace it? So it's really a line between what is your creative process? How can you reimagine it and make it more efficient, but still maintain that human aspect? It's you're going to need to teach that to more people because you say it so calmly and you make me feel like it's all going to be fine. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. That's the way I feel about it, too. I'm a big fan so far. Yeah. It's all been good. You know, it hasn't been out that long, though. Um, mm-hmm. So let's let's transition. One of the other areas that we, you and I have talked about in the past is the importance of uh, the data flow on this. So that's just data flow in general, but you, you also right. part of what you do is, you know, when you're selling these images, it's little zeros and ones getting around and, yeah. um, and, and the, the whole legal aspect that we have on the, the transaction of data or, or cross-border data flows. You mentioned um, when we talked recently, they just passed something in Tanzania. What's, what's going on there? Yes, um, they just passed the, um, it's a Data Protection Act, the Personal Data Protection Act uh, 2022. And uh, I think in, in the region, Kenya passed this act in uh, 2019. Uganda also has an act. So it, it's quite timely that they passed their act and they've taken a bit of a liberal interpretation to how they want to govern um, data uh, in the in the jurisdiction. So, for example, they don't prohibit uh, cross-border data transfers, um, and Kenya does. So it's really interesting to see how those things will play out. So and then, when was the Kenya law passed? Is that a recent thing? Yeah, so 2019. Oh, okay, um, yeah. So Not recent, but like-ish. No, but, it, but it's within like the bounds of – I mean, like, I think about how we do privacy here. In the United States, it was industry-specific, so you had uh, more barriers to what information you could share or keep in like the banking industry or the healthcare right. industry. And yeah. we still don't have a national privacy law. So I, it's interesting for us because now the states are, are doing it, and then we've seen what they're doing in the EU. And then yeah. – when I was uh, with you in, in Ethiopia, we were having that conversation about where is the African Union on this. And, you know, it sounds like they they originally had a um, – they had some language up in 2012, I think. But it, they were waiting for the, the rest of the um, – do you, do you refer to them as nation states? I mean, we, I'm looking at EU language, right? So I want to make sure countries – like I'm using the right word there. Um, the countries, you know, are now trying to play what I would call the match-match-win game. Like, you know, do you have symmetry amongst what's going on there? So, uh, I mean, there's the there's the Malabo Convention, and there's I think there's a, a it's not a, I don't think it's a new policy, but there's the AU policy on on privacy. So there is kind of movement on it, but it's it's quite it's quite a difficult task because. One, not all the African countries have passed data protection laws. And two, the level of enforcement is 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 quite different in, in the countries. And the countries are taking different approaches to how they want to govern like data. So there's no unifying voice yet. And I think um, what the AU, some of the challenges are, you'll see that countries are, are acting in silos. They're not talking to each other. And it's interesting because when you look at the African continental free trade area, which is ideally, you know, a trade agreement that is supposed to help intra, uh, intra-jurisdictional trade in, in Africa, it, it's going to be an interesting conversation to see how are we going to talk about digital trade when we haven't discussed the movement of data 
you know, across our right. borders. Yeah. yeah. And it, and there's always usually a sneaky portal where somebody's like they you know that's where they go headquarters. Now let's we'll say Ireland. Um, you know they go to Ireland and then the rules of Ireland get them into the European Union, but they get the protections of other things, tax laws yes, yes, um, yes. that are good for them. So uh, I'm fascinated. I'm going to keep watching what's going on there. So you're going to be hearing from me on on those things because I I think it's it's also like. The fact that it isn't done yet, you're not that behind while everybody's trying to figure this out. I keep trying to remind yeah. people here that we need a national privacy uh, piece of the law um, to be, be, you know, be part of those uh, discussions about how we're going to deal with data. Otherwise, other countries are going to dictate it to us. Yeah, for sure. And 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 one other thing that has just come to mind from the generative AI um, topic is I I also like to look at some of the harm. Um, because there's a lot of conversation on, you know, ethical AI, AI for good, and within the generative AI space, how these um, um, systems are being trained is of big concern because in Africa or in the North, the data points are reflective of the North. So when the system is created, it reflects the bias of the North and the kind of the narrative of the North. And and when you look at... Um, how images video this, this is part of the visual narrative so it really impacts our ability to tell our stories and our ability to to create of of our own um so i think it would be interesting to see how we are able to generate data and to also potentially get into developing these ai systems and and you know kind of generative ai systems that's interesting because we know the other thing that um i mean a lot of Industries do this, but technology companies definitely do this. Well, they'll, they like to go test things in like Nigeria. You know, they just, yeah. they're like, let's go over there. That's a, they're very permissive about letting us show up, mess with stuff for a while and be like, hmm, that didn't work yeah. the way we thought it was going to go. Or they're like, oh, this is really cool. You know, the yeah. test bed worked and, and they pop out of there and they show up in, in other places. So that's, that's yeah. an interesting take on that. Something really interesting also. So um, when you look at language uh, and I'm coming from a, like a diversity and inclusion point of view to AI. Um, South Africa, for example, has 12 national languages, but it got to a point where they had to have a provision for legal documents to be in English so that everyone is able to kind of facilitate operations. And it really begs the question on how are we integrating some of our own local languages into even if, you know, for example, if, if a law firm is using artificial intelligence to um, improve efficiency and review documents and such, how is that integrated into language, for example? You know, our clients, you know, are not only always English speaking um, individuals. So how can we use these systems to facilitate, you know, such such interactions and such experiences? So do you have to transliterate then? You take you can have the discussion in another language and then you transliterate that into English? Yes. So so for example, in South Africa you can request for the document to be uh translated. In Kenya, um it's English, but you can um get a Kiswahili version and even in the courts, um the clerk based on what what is required, the clerk can uh translate in Kiswahili. So hmm. I mean, there's there's some level of um, there's some level of like kind of accessibility happening there. Oh, it's really interesting for learning language models too. The LLM that you know yeah. we actually um, we had the chance a bunch of us that were in Washington before Sam Altman 
testified. Yes. Uh, he did a, an event a couple months earlier and somebody asked him a question and, and there's two layers to that one is uh, colloquialisms. So even though it's English, but there's the, you know, my cousins in Brooklyn use different language elements than my cousins in Chicago or my cousins down South, let's say. And then there's the actual, like, you know, how many languages are they, they training on? And they're basically, we're like, look, we're new, we're getting there. We're trying to do it. You know, we eventually want to do it all, but we need to, you know, so that will be, because we both use, we work with the United Nations a lot. So we have the traditional United nations languages that things get translated into but there's a whole lot of other language sets that out there that need to be trained on so that'll be really yeah. interesting and how do you teach context that's that's one of the fundamental questions yeah mm. well you're going to have a whole nother tranche of things you're going to teach if you <laughs> stick around over there you're getting like more yes. things to explain to people you're yeah. going to have a, an explain to guia show yes. over there yes. <laughs> i can come be a guest I'm actually going to come to Kenya, though. <laughs> You're welcome. More than welcome. More than. <laughs> so, what do you? So, let's talk about. You know, this is all great. So, that for the future of media and privacy in African nations, it sounds like you guys are 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 getting on a path. You know, like a little bit. No. Yeah. Uh, okay. So here's 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 uh, here's an example. So when you talk about the rights of a data subject the rights of an individual to their data to mm -hmm. express themselves in terms of determining what happens to their data. When we talk about storage in Africa, <laughs> the data centers are owned by, you know, Google, you know, these. Ah, okay. So it's the cloud we don't situation. Have, yes. yes. Okay. So even if we talk about enforcement, we don't even have the infrastructure to kind of facilitate some of these things. And, and and it's really becoming a conversation about what is the capacity. So yes, we have the law, but how are we actuating? How are we like facilitating these things? Can we actually do these things that are so laws? Where are you guys leaning? There's two paths that usually take. One is that people try to do data localization physically. You know, then they want the server farms in their you know, physical geolocation where they are. And then the other one is uh, just a, a legal, which is, there's a lot on that as well, because the, the the legal construct of where does the data reside and then who has access to it is, that's yeah. a big conversation. Yeah. Um, so uh, in Kenya, for example, um, we're definitely doing the data localization and you're seeing that in, in, in a slew of other African countries. Um, but I think it really is, just a question of, you know, for example, like for us in Kenya, we're probably at a better uh, position in terms of data centers. We're able to facilitate, you know, infrastructure. We have a, a, a great internet governance. And you have a lot of landing cables yeah. that allow you to have a bunch of stuff going on in Kenya yeah. that's a little harder when you're in the Central African Republic, yes. Yeah, but when you look at Zambia, when you look at Zimbabwe, you know, like when you look at like other African countries, you know, what's their capacity? What's their kind of infrastructure like? It, it really becomes a harder conversation when, you know, for us, we can say, yes, we have this and this. Nigeria has this and this. But, you know, like Zambia probably doesn't have the same level of infrastructure. Or yeah, yeah they also power, too. I mean, it's just, yeah, you know, exactly. there's a lot of layer. I'm mean, the joke's always like, I'm from Washington. I'm always looking for power. Usually that means I'm looking for a power outlet to plug my phone into, but sometimes it's other types of power, too. <laughs> but exactly. yeah, without you need that equilibrium. The power is as important, the energy source, as, you know, getting the then technology entity yeah. there. 
And, and even when you look at the EU, they they were able to unify their laws because there's a level of standardization. There's a level of cognizance that we are working together and we understand what, you know, like our ecosystem is in terms of, you know, economic, economics, um, social, you know, like there's there's already a level where there's that expectation that there's movement that's facilitated through regulation, um, <clears throat> even through like the transport. So hopefully we can... <laughs> Hopefully we can mirror that. <laughs> so, yeah, so I guess that, that brings up another kind of whole tranche of questions in my head. Like, so wh- who is it that, I mean, is it, it, are you doing that nation country by country or are you doing that as a continent? Are you trying to move that forward when you're doing negotiations with the bigger, you know, international enterprise companies? So, so at, at the moment, it's, I'd say it's a bit of both. There's countries um, enacting legislation around data protection, but there's also the AU that's trying to unify the conversation and, and push for a, a national or a continental kind of uh, regulation. And it's, it, it's, it's really being affected by these things that we're talking about, uh, electricity, digital divide, you know, accessibility, it's really being affected by these things because different countries have different approaches and really this issue of sovereignty because it's control. People want to be able to have certain assurances with regards to the data that's been generated in their country. So I, I, I would hope that there'd be more conversation around how can we work together in the same way that the African free, uh, the African continental free trade area was promulgated. That we can also talk about, you know, um, data protection and data flows in that sense. Is it still very mobile first? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, maybe it just stays that way. It's just a, uh, you know, I mean, most people just understand the internet lives on their their mobile device. <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't sit in front of a microcomputer <laughs> like yeah, we yeah. all have, yeah, you know, in front of us. I think it's That's... also because uh, Africa is 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 substantively um, uh, the the informal sector really contributes to the economy. So um, informal sector, there's a, a high penetration in terms of mobile phones. That means you know that's your point of uh, connection. So you know in terms of access, in terms of also like communication information, the mobile phone has become you know a center for all that. Is Facebook still prominent in that space? Because that was in, in certain uh, the big in South American countries where they're like, why would I have a website? You know, they just yeah. put all their information on Facebook and people are just supposed to go there. And it was just to them, it was the Internet. Like, you know, and, and a lot of people couldn't understand that in the United States. But when you travel, you would get it. You know, you'd be like, yeah, right. like I'm yeah. I'm looking for a restaurant review or an address for a restaurant. You had to that's where they you'd go. There there um, weren't all these subdivision groups of things. Yeah. That you, you know. Uh, yeah, uh, it was a, um, I'm sorry, meta. I, mean, I, I, <laughs> I, think, just I, th- meta. I think, I think as a platform, Facebook was like definitely the go-to, but now it's different. Meta okay. is, um, meta does have a couple of projects in Kenya and in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's still a presence, um, in, in, in Africa and in Kenya. That's interesting. Yeah. What, 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 looking to see what all those platforms are doing. Well, what advice would you give us to anyone who's interested in learning more about your work? Where, where should we find this and what can we do to follow along? Uh, I'm, I'm currently writing, which I'm very happy about because I, I really, it's important to me to put out a body of work and to put out um, articles 
uh, and just share my voice and share my perspective. So you can follow me on LinkedIn um, and I'll be posting a lot there. Um, I'm not too like present on Twitter, um, but LinkedIn is like my main kind of channel. So yeah. is it us Americans that are just nuts about Twitter? I think it's not even that. It's people within a 90 mile radius of Washington, D.C. <laughs> we love Twitter. We just love Twitter. <laughs> I mean, it's $44 billion worth of love from Elon Musk to keep it going. God love him. Yeah. No, but Kenyans on Twitter is a thing. So I think I'm just, you know. You're just, you're you're, you're a little nascent. You're not gay. (laughs) I'm going LinkedIn. Darn it. That's where I'm going. You want to find me on the internet, you go to LinkedIn. Yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's great to have you as a guest on Explain to Shane, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you. So stay in touch, my friend. Will do. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, I will definitely be in touch. Great. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.